0: Ben's going to be guiding us through the next part of the Lord's Prayer, but our reading is uh, from Jesus walking on the water. So it is from Matthew chapter 14, reading from verse 22. Have you got your Bible there or it should be on the screen? From verses 22. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake,
1: Good morning, everyone. Um, My name is Ben, if we haven't met before, and we're going to look at uh, this line in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. That's what we're up to today. So let's pray now, and then we'll hook into this. Let's pray again. Father, uh, we thank you for the privilege and the pleasure that we have to gather together and hear from the living God. And so we pray that right now you would speak to us. We pray that your spirit um, would open our hearts and our ears to your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would um, work among us, that you would change us and comfort us and move us. And Father, we want to pray um, that you would um, yeah do a work in us such that we walk out today different people than the ones who walked in because we've met with and sat under the, the Lord's word. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last year... God, we felt God tangibly answered a really small prayer of ours. So this is what happened. Uh, It was a Tuesday and I was, uh, that night we had had a growth group social. Um, So we were going to trivia at the Glen. And uh, I remember, as is the case at the moment, uh, I remember getting to the, you know, the day knowing that that was coming up and we just, for whatever reason that week, didn't have any expendable income. And so I remember being a little bit annoyed by that because you're going to the Glen, right? Like I don't know, there's something, there's a feeling there that comes in that space. Uh, And I remember thinking that morning, spending some time praying to God. And and of course, I'm starting with the big stuff, right? Of course, that that happens. But then towards the end of that prayer, I prayed this line: God, I know that this is stupid. But if there's any way, can we have some money for tonight going to the Glen? I know that it's stupid. And then I finished and went on with my day and actually forgot about it, right? I forgot about that prayer and uh, went to work, came home from work. And when I got home from work, Ross texted me. I'd been working with him all day. but Ross texted me and said, hey, uh, I've got your money here from a COVID trip, a work trip that got canceled that we never went on. Give us your bank details and I'll transfer you that money. Now, I pushed back because I don't remember doing this. And I said, I'm pretty sure I didn't give you this money, and that didn't happen. But he said, no, it's there. We've got it in our bank. We've got records of it. Give me your details. And within a moment, we had money in our account. Now, I remember thinking, what just happened? Right? What is that? What is that moment? It was a very small prayer, and it felt like God tangibly answered it. Now, you might be sitting there going, well, it's just a coincidence, I love how the line, though, in, there's a line in, in the Alpha course that says this, uh, when I pray, coincidences happen. I think there's something true to that. And it might have just been a coincidence, but we, we genuinely, I genuinely felt like this was God answering a small prayer. Now, don't get me wrong. I love the fact that we have a God and Father in heaven who answers big and small things. You know, like, well, He's our Father, so there's nothing too small that we can come, uh, that we can't bring before God. I love that fact But when you look at something like this, there is a tension that begins to arise. And here's the tension, and it's a tension that we actually felt throughout the whole of last year, and the tension is this. Why is it that God would answer small prayers, but not answer big prayers? Why is that? Right? Like, I mean, we've all probably felt that reality before in our life. If you've lived long enough as a follower of Jesus, or even for any amount of time being a follower of Jesus and prayed a prayer, you've probably seen a prayer that you've prayed being answered no, or, you know, what we would say unanswered, whether it's a prayer for life or health or sickness or peace or whatever it is. And, and so there's this tension that arises, and, and we felt this tension last year as well. Now, what I'm about to share might be something that you've been through. And it might be an experience that you've had as well, and it's our experience, and if it is, we just want to say that we, we know that this is heartbreaking, and we know that what we're about to talk about is, is difficult, so we're, we're sorry if this is something that you've been through, but we felt this last year, because last year, in October, we were expecting a baby, and, and we found that out in August, and the whole month of September, we prayed, and I prayed to God, and I prayed for health, and then... And then in October we found out that we were having a miscarriage and the baby didn't make it. And I, and I remember two days after hearing about that, I remember getting in prayer and praying this line, your kingdom come, your will be done. And it stopped me in my tracks. I mean, what do you do with that? Because this has been our experience and I've been praying for this, right? i had been hoping for this. So, so why is that happening? Why did God answer a really small prayer and not this other prayer? I mean, I would have passed a night at the Glen for this other thing, for our birth of our baby. I would have much rather that thing. So why is it that that happened? And, and why is it that when we pray this line, your kingdom come, your will be done, why is this line, this idea, why is this a good thing? Right? Because I think this is the hardest part of the Lord's Prayer. This is the one that challenges us the most, that that, that causes us the most to stop in our tracks, because this is a question, why would we trust the God whom we're praying to? Why do we trust God who we say, your kingdom come, your will be done? Well, this is the space that we're going to spend some time in today. We're going to look at this. We're going to slow down on this idea and we're going to think about this idea. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at Matthew 14, what Ross just read out for us, and we're going to think about this moment of Jesus' life where we see three things. And here they are up front. We're going to see why we can trust God and then we're going to see why we should pray to God and why it's good to pray to God. Okay, that's the journey that we're going to go on. And we start with this idea, why we can trust God. In the middle of this question, your kingdom come, your will be done. Why can we trust God? Well, let's, let's go back to Matthew 14 and let's explore this together. We see it in verse 22 where we pick up the story here. Matthew writes for us. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into a boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went onto a mountainside By himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on a lake, and when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. So let's start with this idea. Why can we trust God? Here in this passage, in the opening verse of this passage, we've got two ideas going on here that we've got to look at. Two things that help us see why we can trust God. And the first is because we have a God who is not distant and far off, but a God who has walked the roads we've walked. It's really crucial we see that the God who we call Father, the God we pray to, is not an absent, far-off God, but a God who knows our experience. And this is what we see first and foremost in this passage when we look at Jesus. Now, you, you see this because of the fact that Jesus is by himself alone praying. But here in the chapter, in chapter 14, what's caused Jesus to do this, he's not just decided that he wants to pray, there's actually, there's actually things that led to this moment. So the context here really matters. And, and you see this from chapter 14. So it begins with uh, John the Baptist dying. If you know the story, the story kind of goes like this. John the Baptist uh, was the cousin of Jesus. He was the one that pointed to Jesus. And there's a moment in Matthew 14 where he gets arrested and put in prison by Herod. And when he's in prison, basically a party happens. And it's a, it's a tragic circumstance where basically Herod kills John the Baptist as a party favor. He beheads John the Baptist. That's at the beginning of chapter 14. But, but then we see the moment where that affects Jesus. You see, we know that news like that is tragic. You know, like, we shouldn't just let it pass us by because it's written in the Bible. I mean, let's feel the weight of this. Like, John the Baptist was just beheaded. I mean, we we heard some version of this in some ways from stuff that happened in Israel this week. And if you heard that news or read that news, there was a sense that it was tragedy and tragic. Well, for Jesus, this is not just a far-off country. This is his cousin this is someone he loves. And, and so we actually see how this affects Jesus. You see, in verse 13 of chapter 14, we read this. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by a boat privately to a solitary place. Do you see the, the news about John the Baptist's death immediately affects him that he wants to withdraw by a private uh, to a private place. Now, when he gets there, what happens is the crowds meet him and he will feed the 5,000. That's that story. That's that moment. A crazy moment when you think of all that he's going through. But at the end of feeding the 5,000, what happens is he dismisses the crowds, he dismisses the disciples, and what does he do? Verse 23 he went up to a mountainside by himself and he prays. And there's a sense in which he's praying, not just for a moment, but all night long, Jesus is praying. Matthew wants us to see that there's a connection here between Jesus being alone, feeding the 5,000, and then being alone again and praying. He wants us to see that he is affected by John the Baptist's death. Jesus here is actually modeling for us what prayer looks like in the middle of chaos. And it's quite beautiful to see that in the middle of death, he prays. But, But while there is many implications of looking at what Jesus does in these opening verses, at the very least, one of the big implications is this. Jesus knows the roads that we walk you know uh, Jesus has been there Jesus has experienced the death of a friend Jesus has experienced injustice Jesus has gone through that he knows right like our God is not a distant far off God that has no idea what you're going through and surely this helps us when we think about this idea how can we pray your kingdom come your will be done it's a deep comfort to know first and foremost that he understands but you see, there is a bigger reason why we can pray this from these verses. And it's through what Jesus would do on the water. Now, uh, we know the story. This is the miracle of Jesus walking on the water. And uh, we, you know, that's a pretty famous moment of Jesus' life. And uh, we all know it because it's a miracle that Jesus does. And, um, and, you know, people can't walk on water. Only God, if God was going to, could walk on water but this story is actually a little bit more profound than just here is another miracle of Jesus. You know, you almost have to think about this every time you're reading through the gospel. Jesus did so many miracles. Why do we get a lengthy account of, of different ones? And, and here, this one, Jesus walking on the water is quite profound because of the nature of the seas and the ocean in the Bible. You see, if you, if you had, you know, grew up reading the Old Testament back to front, when you get to this moment, there's a bunch of history that hits you when you read this moment, and, and that's because in the Old Testament, the seas and the oceans are representative of the forces of evil. Now, I, I think we understand that in some sense, if you think of the seas and the ocean, particularly if you're, you know, on a boat at night, right, there's a sense of, of fear there, But in the Bible, there's a sense that this is representative, the seas and the oceans, as the forces of evil. And the only one who can overcome the forces of evil is the living God of the universe. Okay, so think about some of the stories that you might know where seas are involved. You know, I mean, you think of Moses and the Red Sea. If you know that story, Uh, the Red Sea is parted. And who does that? Well, it's God that does that. And when the humans are chasing Israel, they can't fight against God and they're crushed under the weight of the sea. And there's a sense that you walk away from that story going, wow, God has power over the forces of evil. Or you think about the story of Jonah. You know, Jonah's running away from God and the seas are enraged and everyone on the boat knows that God must be doing this because God is the only one who has the power over the seas. Or my favorite one, it's in Psalm 29. Psalm 29 is essentially a psalm praising God because he has power over the seas. Right? And it's super weird if you don't know the context of the Old Testament. But let me read you one of the verses. You know, it's it's saying, ascribe to the Lord in verse one and two, ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings, the, the glory of strength. But then listen to this verse, verse three of Psalm 29, it says this: The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. It's like a whole psalm dedicated to the fact that God has power over the waters. And and you look at that, and it looks really weird until you start to understand that throughout the Old Testament, the ocean and the seas are symbolic of the forces of evil. Psalm 29 is praising God because He has power over the forces of evil. Now, Now, when we arrive at this story then, what we see is that the ocean's roaring, the wind is blowing, and the disciples are out on the sea. And there's almost this sense of how is Jesus going to fight this big battle? But do you notice how he confronts the ocean? He just walks on it. Right? Like he just walks on top of it. Like it's not even a thing. But it is a thing. Like humans can't do that. Humans can't face the ocean. Humans can't face the force of evil. This is something only God could do. And I love the way it reads. It's just like, and then he just walked on the water. Like it's not a thing. And, and there's a sense that as we're reading this, what this should do for us is it should help us see that the God that we pray to is the God that overcomes the force of evil. But you see, if this passage points us to this, of course it's just a shadow of what's to come. Because the greatest victory of Jesus would not be walking on the water. The great victory of Jesus is, of course, at the cross. Because what we see is that Jesus came into the world to defeat the forces of evil that human, humans could not do. You know, humans could not defeat evil and Satan and death. But when Jesus entered the world, this is what he did. He came for that. He came to defeat the force of evil. And when he died on the cross, he took sin on his shoulders. He defeated Satan. He defeated death. And he rose again. And when you look to the death and resurrection of Jesus, what you see is essentially our God walking over the forces of evil. It's the cross that reveals to us that we have a God that defeats evil. I love how Paul records this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You know, he's speaking about the resurrection of Jesus. And he's talking, you know, he labors this point, if you know 1 Corinthians 15. He labors the point, but then he gets to this idea where he's speaking about death. And he says this, "'Where, O death, is your victory? "'Where, O death, is your sting? "'The sting of death is sin. "'The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, "'who has given us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ.'" You see, the, the story of Jesus walking on the water points us to the cross. It points us to the death and resurrection of Jesus where he would walk on the forces of evil and, and defeat sickness and suffering and sin and Satan finally and for good so that we can look to death, our greatest enemy, and say, where is your sting? Where is your victory? So when we're thinking, right, so, so we take this into consideration, and when we're thinking about this line, your kingdom come, your will be done, why is it that we can trust the God who we're saying this to Well, it's because firstly, he's walked the roads we've walked. But secondly, it's because he's overcome these forces. He's made anything that we face in this life simply temporary because he's defeated it ultimately and finally in his death and resurrection. So as we start, we've got to see this. We actually can trust this God. We can trust this God. But the second thing that we see as we walk through this passage is it's not just that we can trust this God, it's that we should trust this God. Okay, so let's think about this story again. Jesus is uh, walking on the water. And you've got this moment for the disciples, the wind's blowing, the waves are crashing. It's this big, scary moment for them. And for, these, uh, for, the, for the disciples, you know, it's not just the water, it's the force of evil. All of that is tied up. And then they think they see a ghost. I mean, that is truly frightening, right? Like, I mean, we all get scared if you get those videos on your phone that people send you of like a nice, calm meadow and then at the end of it is someone screaming. You know those ones? They scare me please don't send them to me anymore. That always scares us, right? What about this? What about this? Like, this is truly frightening. You're on the ocean in the middle of the night. You've been fighting it all night long, and then there's a ghost appearing. Now, what what, what happens in this? Well, let's have a read of this, because Jesus says this in verse 27. He says, immediately, but Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. Now, like please Jesus what are you talking about what do you mean don't be afraid this is truly terrifying you know if we could picture being that this is actually frightening so how is it that Jesus can say take courage and don't be afraid how does Jesus drop that on them well it's these words in the middle and it doesn't look like much to us when he says, it is I, but literally in the Greek, the original language, it reads like this, Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, I am, don't be afraid. Now that is actually hugely significant um, because of what we understand from the Old Testament. Now if you're not familiar with this, in the Old Testament there's a moment where Moses is being sent by God and he says, who will I say sent me? And God says, say I am sent, sent you, I am who I am. And so what happens from that moment on, for the rest of the Old Testament, the personal name of God is seen as I am who I am. In your Bibles, if you have a Bible, in the Old Testament, when you read Lord in capital letters, that's what it stands for, I am who I am. Now, um, that goes right throughout the Old Testament, but in the ancient Jewish communities where Jesus existed, no one would ever say I am, right? Because if you did, you would be killed for claiming to be God. There was such a reverence to the the words, I am, right? Because that's what the personal name of God was. Now, when you understand all that, all of a sudden, this starts to be a little bit more profound. Because what Jesus is actually saying in this moment when he says, take courage and don't be afraid because I am is here. What he's saying is the presence of the living God is with you. The presence of the great I am of the Old Testament, the eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful God, the God who created the world in a word, this God is right here in the middle of the storm with you. And, And Jesus is getting at this idea that when you understand the presence of the living God with you in the middle of it, it's meant to change the way you feel. And for the disciples, this is what it's meant to do for them. They're meant to take courage and not be afraid because I am is with them. The God of the universe is with them. Now, what does this do for us as we consider this and look at this? And and, in light of this question, this prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. Well, what we begin to see is, is, is a recognition of the fact that the one we're praying to is the God of the universe. So So we've got to recognize this, and there are a couple of implications of this. So the first implication is just putting some reverence on the one we're praying to. You know I know that in Australia, uh, we tend to culturally have this anti-authoritarian way of thinking about leadership. You know, I don't know if you've noticed this, but we all have this idea, you know, we've got the tall poppy syndrome, if anyone's in the you know, position of leadership and they think they're good, we tear them apart and take them down a few notches, or just anyone in leadership. I think generally we think if we were given a couple of hours, we could probably do a better job than the person in leadership, in any position of leadership, whether it's in your job or politics or anywhere else, right? Now, that has some good things and bad things culturally, but, but a problem arises if we, if we bring this towards God. Because the temptation is to look at God and be like, just treat him casually, as if he doesn't matter. But of course, if we were to do that, we would be mistaken, because the God that we're praying to is not just another authority figure that you could probably do better with. No, this is the living God of the universe, the God who was here before you and will be here after you, the God who has watched throughout history, nations rise and nations fall, kingdoms come and kingdoms go, who's watched everything and has all power and all authority and all glory and all honor, this is who we're talking to here. You know, in, in the first line of the prayer, where it's our Father in heaven, holy is your name, the idea of hallowed be your name, um, is some of the older versions have this sense of like put some reverence on him because he's perfect and holy and good and there's a sense in our heart we should look to God and, and, and revere him because he is God. And when we're thinking about this line, your kingdom come, your will be done, there's a sense that we should be praying this line because he's God. It's his kingdom. He's sovereign over all things. It doesn't, it, in one sense, it doesn't matter how we feel about that because he's the living God. He'll be here after us. He was here before us. He is the God Almighty, the King of the universe, the King of kings and God of glories, the eternal one. So so we should be saying this because he's God. But you see, there's there's another implication of this. And the other implication is when you consider who we are, right? Because one of the problems we have with your kingdom come, your will be done, is we want my kingdom and my will to be done. You know, that's that's what happens in our heart. But the fact that he's unchanging is a good thing. And we see that when we realize how changeable and, uh, and, and temporary we are. Okay, so let me give you the illustration to talk about um, how, how we, what we are like. This is an illustration, actually, that I have watched recently from uh, Tim Keller. So if you're looking for someone to listen to so, who preaches sermons and has lots of good stuff, Tim Keller is a pastor in America who passed away earlier this year, but his, his stuff is gold. Just listen to it all. And, but, but he has this illustration that really struck me. Struck me. And it, it's this illustration. So he talks about this idea that when you turn 20 what happens is you look back on your 15-year-old self. And what do you think about your 15-year-old self? You know, it actually doesn't matter how old you are. If you're not yet 20, just think five years earlier. What do you think about yourself? Because for most of us, we look back to our 15-year-old self and we think, I I needed to grow a little bit when I was 15. You know, there was some stuff that I didn't didn't quite understand when I was a 15-year-old. And God, I'm glad that I've grown and, and all that stuff because now I start to get things. But what Keller points out is this actually just keeps happening. So when you turn 30, you look back on your 20-year-old self. And this is, like, this is my experience, right? I'm 32. I look back on my 20-year-old self and I'm like, that guy was a fool. We all do that, you know? Like, I've actually got... Um, like, there's actually some sermons that I wrote when I was 20 and it is unbearable. It's the worst thing you can come across. And, but we all do this. We look back on our 20-year-old self, we think that guy, you know, or that girl, they needed to grow. They didn't understand life, not like I do now that I'm 30. And then you get to 45, and the same thing happens. You know, you look back to your 30-year-old self, and you think they needed to grow. And then you get to 60, and you look back to 45, and then you get to 80, and you look back to 60. And here's what Keller says. He says, in summary, do you see what this all means We're all idiots. (laughs) Now, it wouldn't be, it would be far funnier, I think, if it wasn't so true. But do you see what this does for us in this present moment? Like, and and particularly this line, like, I want my kingdom to come and my will to be done. That's what I want. But I know that in 15 years' time, I'm going to look back to me right now and think he didn't understand. You know, like, I, I thank God He didn't give me what I asked for when I was 20. When we consider this line, we might not like that it's God that we're submitting to, but if it was us, it would be chaos. We need someone more stable, someone more suitable, someone that doesn't change depending on how many hours sleep they got and, you know, all that sort of stuff. We actually need someone more stable and suitable. We need God and thank God that we have God. This is who we're praying to, the great I am, the unchangeable God of eternity past. This God is the one we're coming before. And we're saying to this God, the God who's seen it all, who knows it all, who is truly good, we're saying to this God, your kingdom come and your will be done. So we should actually pray to this God so we can trust this God Because he knows the roads we've walked. He's overcome evil. We can pray to this God. We should pray to this God. But finally, there's one more thing we've got to see in here. It's actually good for us to pray this. It's good for us. Now, let's get back into this passage, and we'll see this, of how this unfolds for Peter. So you've got the moment in the story, you know, their fear. They've got anxiety. Jesus says, take courage. I am. Don't be afraid. And then in in verse 28, Peter has this crazy idea. He says, Lord, if it's you... Tell me to come to you on the water. It's pretty good. And then Jesus says, come, he said. Is this not just some boys having fun? (laughs) It's pretty good. But, But then, so Peter gets down from the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. And when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, and the wind died down, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. So the last thing we're going to look at here is this idea that it's actually good to pray this line to our God. It's good to trust in our God. And, and here we do see this in this passage when we look at Peter and his response. Right? So he, he starts to walk on the water, and it's a quite amazing moment of his life where he walks on the water with Jesus. Um, but then Peter starts to sink, he starts to sink, and he cries out to Jesus, Save me. And I love it. Jesus saves him. He grabs him. You know, there, there is a sense here in which, within our hearts, we've got to recognize that Jesus will truly save anyone who asks him. Peter cries out, Save me, and, and, and Jesus does. But then Jesus says this line, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? Now, this is kind of interesting Because, you know, when we think about why did he doubt? Why is it that Peter doubted? Well, we actually know. We know. And it's found there in verse 30. Look at it again. He says this When he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Do you see why Peter began to doubt? Why his faith was shaken? It's because he was looking at the storm. He was looking at the wind. He was looking at the waves. And in looking at his circumstances, Whether he was aware of it or not, wanted to or not, it began to affect the way he thought about and looked at Jesus. His faith was rocked. His circumstances impact the way that he was thinking about Jesus, and so he began to sink. And Jesus said, why did you doubt? Now, this passage does end with this praise of, you know, truly you are the Son of God. There's a sense that this passage should remind us of who was on the boat, who's walking on the water, who provides the stability in the storm. But when we look at Peter, it also does give us this principle, this reminder that when we're faced with storms or circumstances, if we look at our experiences and not to Jesus, we will sink. And this principle is actually one that comes up right throughout the Bible. In fact, when we were thinking before about 1 Corinthians 15, you know, he's laboring this point about, you know, the resurrection of Jesus, he's speaking about this. And, you know, talks about how great it is that we have victory in Jesus. The very next verse says this in verse 58 of 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying because of the victory we have in Christ, the God who overcame the forces of evil, the God who walked on the water, the God who defeated death, Who gave us life who rose again the god who's the great i am because of him when we look to him we can stand firm and we can stand in the middle of our experiences in the middle of whatever the storm is it's good for us to pray your kingdom come your will be done because what it's doing is it's lifting our eyes to the god who's sovereign over all things including the storms that we're in now there's the theory but of course, we are all aware that the practice of this is far more difficult than it seems. Because when the storms come, sometimes it feels impossible to look up. You know, this is something that we've had to learn a little bit lately. You know, last week I uh, spoke about this idea of, um, of our, uh, the birth of our second child. And um, it was quite traumatic but here was the circumstances leading up to it we knew that elizabeth had this chance of getting pre-eclampsia it's a basically a thing where simply put you can google it to find more out about it if you're interested but basically the placenta attacks the baby and the mum. and we knew that when she fell pregnant that this was a chance and so for five months we were praying that that wouldn't happen you know and and i, I remember having this one night where man the prayer felt good You ever have those moments where you're just like, I could have moved mountains tonight with that prayer. Like I'm so confident that this is not going to happen. She's not going to get preeclampsia and this baby's going to go to 40 weeks and we're going to be sweet. And then um, when she was 33 weeks, we found out Elizabeth had preeclampsia. And so there was that. And then uh, when the birth came around, it developed into this thing called help syndrome. So again, you can Google it if you're interested. H E L L P. It's basically a more intense version of preeclampsia. And the morning that El- Elizabeth was uh, sorry, that Scout was born was just chaos. It was it was some dark moments of our life. But what happened was, in, in, under an emergency, Scout was born, and we praise God for that. And From that moment on, the recovery was good. He was in special care for a little bit and Elizabeth was in recovery for a little bit, but everything was was pretty much good after that and it went really well. But here's what's messed up. And again, if this experience that I'm going to speak through is something that you've gone through, again, we see you and hear you and understand that this is a hard thing to talk about for many of us. But here's what's messed up. At the exact same time, Jeff and Kelly, our dear friends at church, at the exact same hospital, on the same floor, went through a miscarriage. What is that? Now, one of the difficulties that we had in the middle is, like, we've got our baby, and then there's that. And one of the really uh, things that messed with our head was when we told people that Scout was born, and of course, you can't tell everyone everything, right? But when we told people Scout was born, the most common response to that was the line, God is good. And I, I think what people are saying in that moment and I think if you pushed anyone who said that, they would say God is good in the good and the bad, right? And, and I think what they're saying in that moment is praise God who's, who's in control of all things. But for us in that moment, it messed with us. And it wasn't until a couple of days later that we began to realize why. It's because what it felt like, it felt like people were drawing a direct connection between our experience and God's character our birth, God is good. But do you see the tension? So does that mean for our friends that God is not good? You see, the problem arises if our experience dictates and determines God's goodness, then what's going to happen in your life is eventually God will not be good. because you might have life today and health tomorrow but we know what it's like to live in this world inevitably and eventually things will fall apart you know we if you think about it in our life we will eventually lose the job that we love everyone does eventually money will no longer buy us things that bring any sense of joy in life eventually we will get sick with a sickness that cannot be cured Eventually, if we live long enough, we will have more funerals more frequently and the people around us will pass away. Such is the nature of the world that we live in. And if God is good based on your circumstances, eventually he will not be good. Because there's not always healing. Not in this life. And, and so we live in our world with a temptation to draw a direct line between the, the experiences we have and the character of God. But we can't afford to do that. Because if we do that, if we look to our experiences, what will inevitably happen is the wind will pick up, the waves will blow, and we will sink. So what's our alternate? We look to Jesus. We look to Jesus, even as Peter did, when he's sinking in the middle of the storm. And, and you know, there's been times where I have felt like I have barely got my mouth up to the water. I've been sinking so much. But we look to Jesus and we pray this line, Lord, save me, or your kingdom come, your will be done. And what happens is when we look to Jesus, it's there in the middle of, our, of the storm that we're anchoring our soul, we're grounding our soul, not our, in our experiences, but in the character and the goodness of Jesus. You see, when we look to Him, it helps us in the middle of whatever we're facing, whatever storm, whatever wind, whatever rain, it helps us actually stand firm in the middle of all that. And when we do that, it is good for us. Truly, it's good for us. And so this is why we pray this line, your kingdom come and your will be done. In the middle of the storms that we face, in the middle of whatever's going on in life, the good and the bad, We submit to our God in heaven because he knows the road we walked on. He came to overcome the forces of evil. He is God, the great I am, the unchanging God from eternity past to eternity future. And when we pray this, this is one way to ground our souls in who God is and what God has done so that in Christ we can stand firm. Let's pray. Jesus, as we come before you, we thank you so much that in you we get this picture of of goodness. Lord, we praise you that you are not a far-off God, or a distant God, or an absent God, but a God who came near. And we praise you, Jesus, for what you did, what you went through, what you did, the security you provided for us. And God, we pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on you. Father, we we know that right now in this room, that there are some of us that feel like we are sinking. Jesus, may you help us to fix our eyes on you. We thank you for this moment with Peter when he was sinking and he cried out, Lord, save me, that you saved him. Jesus, we pray this morning that you would grab some of us and that you would remind us of your goodness and your character, and that you would help us hold on to who you are, because you are stable and secure. Lord, may we stand in this storm, and may we stand firm until we see you face to face, knowing that one day you will wipe away every tear, because we, we know this to be true, because we looked at the death and resurrection of Jesus. So help us now, we pray. And we pray, too, that this next song would be a moment for us as a church, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the King of Kings. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.